Who is the most underrated actor of all time? It's Dolph Lundgren. Correct. Why? Well, because of his uh, spiky hair, yep. his ice-cold demeanor, and his big muscles. Absolutely. I must break you. Welcome to I Must Break This Podcast. This is the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. Hello and welcome back to I Must Break This Podcast, the fan podcast that takes an in-depth look at the films of action legend Dolph Lundgren. Today we're going back to 2005 and taking a look at Dolph's directorial debut, The Defender. In this political thriller, Dolph plays Lance Rockford, a Secret Service agent who's tasked with protecting the head of the NSA as she takes part in a mysterious, secretive meeting held in an empty hotel in Bucharest. Yet when the hotel is attacked by an unknown army of hitmen, Rockford must race to protect those involved in the meeting as well as the future of national security. Caught between the past and the present. I know who you are. I know what you have done. Between the enemy and his country. Under no circumstances must any human being on Earth ever know this meeting took place. One man must fight to protect his nation. Sniper, get down! If this goes wrong, it could bring down your entire administration. If this goes wrong, it brings down the entire Western Alliance. Lundgren is the defender. I'm your host, Sean Malloy, and joining me once again to break down this film is my buddy and show regular Chris Prentice. Chris, how's it going, man? I'm doing very good, Sean. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. This is, uh, you know, I mean, it's it's been a while since uh since we've had you on. I mean, obviously, you joined us for for quite a few episodes, but I felt like it was only fitting to have you back uh, for for a variety of reasons. Uh, number one, you let's see, joined joined me for the inaugural episode uh, back when we covered uh, Rocky Four and those those early ones and uh to all the listeners who have been uh <laughs> who who have stayed with us since that first episode thank you because it was uh pretty rocky and we were still trying to kind of figure out our footing in those uh first few episodes but um you know i feel like in in an odd way this this particular film the big reason why i wanted you back for it was because you know this is i mean and i've said this on some of the previous episodes but around this period mr lundgren was resetting and trying to revamp and change his career a bit because the late nineties, early two thousands were a bit of a rough go for him. And so I feel like this is a comeback of sorts well before he really even had his official comeback in 2010, thanks to expendables. And then again, last year 
in 2018 thanks to Creed 2 and Aquaman. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, 2005 was sort of the uh kind of the 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 the, the bi- I I think it's even a, a bigger comeback than than Expendables cuz I mean, it was just such a rough go from 2000 to 2004 and it, it just seemed like it was pretty much coming to an end for his career and it, or if he was going to still continue, the films were just going to keep getting worse and worse. And it was just an awful time to really uh, be a big fan of Lundgren. And, you know, thankfully between direct action and then with the defender, you you felt like the, the ship was getting in back into the right direction and you know the things were getting a lot better and uh and yeah it, it was just a, a much better time to to be into his films and you had a little bit more hope and you know granted there was there was retrograde which um at least I saw in, in around 05 so you know that wasn't too hot but for the most part between direct action and and this one the defender it was like a solid one two punch of getting back to basics and that's that's kind of what i call these movies is getting getting back to basics well and you know and to the uninitiated uh, you know someone who's maybe listening in they're probably thinking well the, this film the defender that you're talking about it's still a direct-to-video film how in the heck can that be a comeback if it's still direct-to-video but i honestly think it was around this period where lundgren said okay you know what um if i want to be relevant once again and i want to start turning in work that I can be proud of the best way to do that is if I start directing my film, directing my films that I'm starring in, if I'm starting to kind of man the ship, as you say. And so that's, that's exactly what he decided to do. And so while the defender is still a direct to video film, and then, you know, the other films that he directed uh, after this, uh, the Russian specialist and uh, Icarus and uh, command performance true. While those are all direct to video they have such an edge and such a polish to them that, in my opinion, make them stand out as being some of Lundgren's best films. Oh, yeah, totally agree. I mean, I think getting behind the camera, it kind of gave him a, a reason to become more engaged in the movies. And, you know, it, it, since his name was not only up front as the main actor, but also as a director, you know, I think he really wanted to make good movies and and out of the out of the five that he directed i don't think there's one that's that's bad really i mean maybe my least favorite no. would probably probably be missionary man but even that's watchable i mean it's okay um but i think all, all of his directorial films have been pretty damn good um and so yeah i think it was just a, a good way for him to kind of recharge his batteries find uh, uh, something else to be passionate about related to making these movies. He wasn't just a guy for hire who you were slapping his name on a poster and he was basically just showing up and reading his lines, doing what was, was asked of him and then on to the next one. I mean, he, he was really involved in these movies and uh, I, I think the, the, the proof is in the pudding. I mean, they're, they're, the ones that he actually directed are, are to me all all worth watching to some d- degree. I mean, there there there's really not one that I that I say is is outright bad that he directed. 
Well, even James Chalk, you know, Lundgren's uh, close personal friend, James Chalk, who uh, I was able to speak with a couple of years ago, has been on the show. He even echoed something extremely similar to what you and I are saying. He said, you know, when you're directing a film, okay, a film that you're starring in, regardless if you're starring in it or not or whatever, but when you're the director, when you're the guy behind the ship, you see so much more of the production and you have such a clear vision with how everything is going to turn out. And if you look at, for example, say, uh, Hidden Agenda or Agent Red, I know, <laughs> I know we yeah. keep going back to Agent Red as kind of being the, uh, the lowest, but you know, I imagine when Lundgren signed on for those, I, I gotta believe that maybe he saw something on the paper or on the page that he thought was gonna be, um, that was gonna make it stand out. But unfortunately, he wasn't behind the camera on that one. He was just, you know, he was just a gun for hire, you know, acting in it. And unfortunately, we all know how the end result of both those films turned out. So, yeah, I think uh, because he is behind the camera on this one, because I will say we're going to be talking about it. Um, this was originally supposed to be directed by Sidney J. Fury. Sidney J. Fury had helmed um, the past couple films of uh, Dolph. He did uh, Detention. He did Direct Action. He was supposed to do this one. But then Sid Fury fell ill. And so, as the story goes, Lundgren stepped up to handle the directing duties. And, you know, I will say right now, had Sid Fury directed this one as intended, I don't think it would be as serious as it is. I think it, especially when you have, we're going to be talking about it, but Jerry Springer as the president, I think Sid Fury would have made this a little cornball. Uh, he would have added kind of a little bit of a goofy edge to it. And it would not be as, um as I mean, because this is, this is a pretty serious hardcore film when you get right down to it. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, if you, you got to consider when it was, when it was out, you know, it, at least it came out in the, in the States, 2005, only a few years after nine 11, everything, you know, is terrorism, terrorism. It's kind of the big topic. And yeah, for uh, what's essentially, you know, just kind of a direct to video shoot 'em up, it's 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 a little bit heavier than than you would expect from from this sort of movie. It's I mean, it, look, it's got plenty of people getting shot in the head, plenty of uh, of blood spraying everywhere, but it's got a, a little bit more to say than than you would expect from this kind of movie. And, and I think that's one of the reasons that it works so well is that it does isn't going for just a lot of cornball laughs and, you know, just a lot of just empty uh, scenes of, of, uh, of killing. I mean, there's just, it's got a, a, a little bit of a head on its shoulders from a movie that, you know, you would not expect from a, a Dolph Lundgren movie where he's named, you know, Lance Rockford. Well, and can't you imagine though? I mean, do you see what I'm saying? If, if Sid Fury had directed this, I mean, you know, when you look at it from the offset, okay, Sid Fury is directing it. He directed the previous two films starring Dolph. Then you have Jerry Springer turning up as the president of the United States. I think it, we would have had a lot of tongue-in-cheek moments in the film, a lot of um, eye-rolling-inducing moments as well. I mean, I, I don't think that the film would um, have the uh, the grit and the edge that it does had this been manned by Sid Fury. No, I th- I think you're right. I mean, I think if you look at the two that he had made previously with Dolph, you know, even though I like, you know, direct action, there certainly is, is a, a some more stabs at, at not so great humor in that one compared to The Defender. And uh, yeah, I think if, if he had been the one to continue 
behind the camera for the defender, it probably would have, you know, might still have been watchable and, and decent. I mean, I, like I said, I like direct action. Um, but I think you're not a fan what, of detention. What, what, what's up no, with that? Oh no, I know <laughs> you, 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 you covered that one. Thank you for not inviting me to, to come talk about that one. Uh, yeah, that was, that was one where I'm just kind of like, oh, oh man, this is, this is, this is kind of the end for, uh, for Mr. Lundgren. So I, thankfully I was way, way wrong with that. And, uh, you know, he, he, he has rebounded, but I, I do agree with your point that if Fury had, had stuck around, I think you would have had a movie that was maybe a bit closer to detention than than what we ended up with. Well, and before we get into this one, I thought that it was important to examine and evaluate Lundgren's career, especially prior to this particular film, uh, just so we can appreciate the film even more. And I kind of coined a lot of these terms unofficially, uh, you know, in, in previous episodes, but We'll just do a quick recap. Uh, I would say, and if, if I'm wrong or if you want to uh, jump in or correct me, please, please feel free. But I would say 1985 to about 1993, we can kind of classify as the quote unquote golden era. So this is Rocky Four all the way up to Universal Soldier. These were the films that he did that for the most part, they all went theatrical or, you know, many of them, like, for example, uh, the Punisher that was intended to go theatrical. And unfortunately it didn't, but you know, I would say um, those are his golden area. Those are the films that uh, he's probably best known at known for, and he'll probably forever be known for. And then if we go to 1994 to about 1997, I kind of look at that as being the experimental era. So while many of the films in there, actually with the exception of Johnny Mnemonic, I think they all went direct to video uh, even though they were intended to go theatrical. But I would say all the films within that era, you see Dolph trying new things. He's attempting new roles. He's attempting new uh, new style of films, you know, like Silent Trigger, I would say, is more of an art house type film. Uh, same thing kind of with Hidden Agenda. And then if we go to 1997 to 2004, we can coin this one a variety of ways. We can call it uh, the direct-to-video era. We can call it the conventional era. We can call it the paycheck era. But this is the era where Lundgren was firmly in place at the time he signed on to do The Defender. Yeah, I know. I think that's a pretty good breakdown of, of how his career had had sort of gone those first uh, 20 years. Uh, I, I think the paycheck era, that's a good way to describe 97 through 04. There's definitely movies in those years that I like more towards the earlier part of those years. Uh, you know, I, I, I think Bridge of Dragons is, is pretty cool. Uh, there's, there's a lot of pretty good ones in that era, but you know, as we got towards the end of it, it was just looking pretty horrendous. And I think the, 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 the paychecks were basically killing the passion and he just didn't really have any, any motivation to to do his best work and that's because the the movies weren't really designed to be good they were just basically hey throw it on a video shelf people will see his name they'll think of his older movies and then that's how we'll make our money off of it and uh so yeah i, I think the way that you're categorizing that those first 20 years is pretty accurate and see, and that's what I think is so fascinating and phenomenal about this film. I, I, and again, for being a relatively, I don't want to use the term generic, but for being, you know, a, a kind of a generic shoot 'em up thriller that this film is. And again, the yeah. fact that it's direct 
the, the fact that it's direct to video, we can just, you know, say that as is. But if you think about it, all of Lundgren's compatriots in the direct to video world around this time were pretty much hanging it up, or maybe not so much hanging it up completely, but we're kind of fading away. I think around this time, Brian Bosworth was pretty much done. Uh, yeah. Michael Dudikoff wasn't doing much anymore. Jeff Speakman was over. Right. And, you know, you and I were texting about this a few weeks ago, but, you know, you, you can always say, well, if, you know, if he hadn't done this, this would have happened or whatever. But, you know, I would not be surprised that if Dolph had not decided to start directing his films, I wouldn't be surprised if he was similar to Speakman, Bosworth, Dudikoff, all those guys, and maybe hung it up as well. Because the projects that he was getting, let's face it, were not good. <laughs> they were. Yeah, well, I think the other interesting thing going on with the the low-budget action films at this time were, you know, the guys who were, you know, ahead of Lundgren in stature, at least in terms of fame, they were all now basically strictly direct-to-video. So Van Damme was basically just a direct-to-video guy, Seagal, Snipes, you know, they they were basically all now direct-to-video guys, and I think you know, they were getting the bulk of the, the offers to do these movies, and it was kind of muscling uh, Lundgren and some of the, the next tier guys out. I mean, even Stallone had a couple movies around this period that were going direct to video. So it was just that that era where Lundgren was essentially one of the biggest names in the direct to video action genre he he was being scaled back and then you had all these other guys that were kind of crowding that turf and i hope that might have been another reason that he wanted to get into directing is because hey you know i i if i'm if i'm gonna start getting some of these lower tier films at least let me uh get behind the camera and see if uh i can do a better job than some of the hacks i've been working with well, see, but and, and don't you, I agree with you completely. And don't you think, I mean, that's one of the things that I respect and I think is just so cool about Dolph around this time. Because if you think about it, I mean, yeah, he's essentially saying, okay, yeah, these are the films that I'm getting. Okay, if I'm going to be doing these low budget direct to video films that have, you know, small budgets, all that stuff with them, well, then I'm going to be invested and I'm going to have a passion and I'm going to you know, put forth some of my best work. I mean, because if you look at, uh, if you look at Steven Seagal around this time, because like you said, yeah, Steven Seagal, Wesley Snipes, those were all guys who at this point, yeah, were starting to do the direct-to-video stuff. And they had kind of lost their, well, not even kind of, let's face it, they did. They lost yeah. their passion, especially as yes. they're going. And on one hand, Chris, on one hand, Chris, I think about it, and I really, I really can't blame them. I mean, if you look, take a look at guys like, Steven Seagal or Wesley Snipes, they were at one time starring in films that were being made for between 40 to 55 million. And oh, then sure. suddenly now they're doing it. Suddenly now they're doing a film that's about five, six million. Well, of course, you, you're not going to put in your best work. Of course, of course you're going to yeah. uh, have, have a stunt double do most of your work and you're not even going to want to bother to come back to redub your lines. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, um, oh, case, yeah, absolutely. And, and like in the case, case of in point, Snipes, Steven Seagal. Well, exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you look at Snipes, I mean, he was still at that period, you know, doing the Blade sequels. So, you know, those had pretty good budgets. But 
that was essentially it in terms of uh, stuff going to theaters. Right. I mean, there was the Art, Art of War. That was one, another one that was in theaters. But, uh, you know, for the most part, once he started doing the, the direct-to-video films, I mean, you could see, I mean, his his direct-to-video ones are, are pretty much just horrendous because he is just not into them at all. And, uh, and it, it totally shows in the, in the finished product. So, yeah, like I said, it was, a, it was a very interesting time for, for a lot of these guys and their careers. And, you know, some were, were able to kind of persevere and, and still do some halfway decent movies. And then others, I, you know, like mainly Seagal, I think aside from a couple of his direct to video films, it was just a bunch of junk. It's just, and it's, you know, continued that way ever since. Yeah. But I mean, then you have a guy like Lundgren who says, you know what? Yeah. Maybe this is being made for a niche market and it's going to be of a low budget, but you know what? Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to make the most of it. And so that's one thing that I love. Uh, And so as we look at this film, I'm curious. Okay, Chris, your mm-hmm. first time seeing this particular film, when did you first hear about it? And if you can go back that far, I guess your initial reaction to either renting it, buying it, and what did you think then? Well, this this was one that uh, I I had to I had to do a, a pretty pretty big investment to watch this film because I first got a copy of it. I believe it was a, a tie made dvd so it was a dvd made in thailand and that's how i first heard that it was available found one of these websites that sell sold thai dvds to the states and so i ordered it and you know it did not play on a regular dvd player so i was uh ended up going to target for this movie <laughs> and you know this was back then they there was a, a company called colby and they made these real little tiny cheap DVD players, no frills whatsoever, but they played pretty much anything. I mean, they were basically multi-region DVD players and they were, they're pretty cheap. I think it was like 40 bucks maybe and bought that, hooked it up and was able to, to watch this movie. And, and hey, to me, it was money well spent because, uh, I, I was really, thrilled with how the movie turned out and uh and, and i had no regrets at all at purchasing my uh colby multi-region smaller than a 8-bit cartridge dvd player do you still own the dvd player i'm curious uh no i do not still no, own okay. that dvd player no but uh <laughs> it, it served me well during its its run and uh, I, I have no regrets uh, from that purchase whatsoever. It was uh, it was a fine piece of machinery, and I, I don't even know if the if the good folks at Colby are still operating. But uh, but God bless them. Did, now, did you end up buying the official Region One DVD release, or do you still have your Thai DVD? No, I I did I did end up later on that year because this this was it would have been like in the the spring of '05. Uh, when I got the the Thai DVD, and then yeah, eventually when the the the, the legit one came out in the states, I uh, I did purchase that one, and then that's the same one that I watched uh, just a couple days ago to prepare for this podcast. So so still have that disc, and uh, you know, fifteen years, it it finally has come back in handy. Well, you know, my first time seeing it, um, I distinctly remember going to 
pick this up at a media play. I don't know if you had any media plays uh, where, where you grew up in California or not, but Media Play was a wonderful physical media store that uh, I think I went there at least a couple times a week back in the day. Um, but I, I'll never forget my my first time checking it out. Um, I left work and it was my first real job job. I was fresh out of college and it was my first real job that I had. And so I remember leaving work, heading straight to Media Play and uh, Media Play only had one copy of this one. Um, again, because this was not, you know, a huge, big budget, you know, widely publicized release, but they did have one copy of this particular title and it was in the, uh, in the new release area. So I picked this up and oddly enough, I also remember, um, like I said, this was October of 2005. It also came out the same day as Batman begins. So I picked you that know, one up. As it, 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 it's <laughs> so weird. You say that because I, I, that was the exact same purchase that I made was defender and Batman begins on DVD. So that is bizarre, but yes, I clearly remember that. And, you know, I remember because like, like, you know, <laughs> I, I had blindly purchased uh, some of Lundgren's previous films and uh, was a little disappointed in some of those purchases. Um, this one, I, you know, I, I always had high hopes for all of them, but this one, I remember thinking, okay, well, okay, Dolph Lundgren is directing this one. And I highly doubt that Dolph is going to let this um, slip and turn into something like The Last Patrol or even go down Agent Red territory. I mean, when I first heard that Jerry Springer was attached, uh, you know, <laughs> playing the president yeah. of the United States, I was a little hesitant, to be perfectly honest, because you joined me for uh, the last time Dolph teamed up with a uh, talk show host, uh, Montel yes. Williams on The Peacekeeper. I, like I said, I was a little hesitant, but I remember thinking, okay, you know what? I, I, I got to have faith. I don't think Dolph is going to let this film go into the goofball, cornball, ridiculous, let's be perfectly honest, stupid territory that films like uh, Agent Red or Detention went into. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I this was one – I don't know if maybe just the 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 hype for this one – was just stronger, but it just seemed like everything I had heard about it was that it was aiming a little higher than his previous films. And I, I kind of had a good sense that this was going to be a much better film than, you know, detention and agent red and all the other junky ones that had been coming out in previous years. So I, I just, I definitely remember even though purchasing it blind and, also purchasing a DVD player to watch it blind, uh, that I, I felt like, okay, th th I think this is going to be worth it. And it, it, it definitely, uh, it, it met expectations. Absolutely. What's, what's interesting, you know, this kind of takes me back a bit, but this was produced and distributed by the long defunct studio Bauer Martinez studios. I was very surprised that uh, New Image didn't handle this one. You would think that New Image would handle this one, but no, this was uh, put out by Bauer Martinez Studios, who at the time, it's interesting because I was reading an article about them that uh, that came out about 12, 13 years ago or whatever. But uh, Bauer Martinez Studios, they were this uh, small little, uh, you know, company that um, they had really big, lofty goals to where they wanted to be the next big studio. And I will say, I mean, if you look at their slate of films, they were they were uh, headed and fronted by a um, by a gentleman by the name of Felipe Martinez, who is this French guy. And, you know, I will say about them, if you look at their slate of films, 
they may may have not had the biggest budgets and the biggest production values, but at least the ones that I've seen, they all are fairly polished and and are decent decently produced movies. Yeah, well the the one that came out uh, a few a few months prior to the defender that they that Felipe Martinez had directed was uh, Van Damme's Wake of Death, which I actually yeah. think is one of Van Damme's best movies. Now, that was an odd one because Ringo Lamb was the original director and from what I understand he directed at least a few weeks worth of the film and then there was another person who was brought in and that person was fired and then Felipe Martinez took over and he's the credited director. So I don't know exactly how much of the, the that film being genuinely good is is for uh, Felipe Martinez. But like you said, I mean, that was a, a quality movie that they, that they were behind. And, you know, I know the other kind of the big story with that that studio, uh, Bauer Martinez, is. They actually paid to handle the the to get the rights to uh, David Ayer's first film with uh, Christian Bale, Harsh Times. And that's right, yeah. That, that which was kind of a it was a big deal because that was a, one of the first movies Christian Bale had ready to release after Batman Begins. May not have been the first one, but it was you know about a year later, and uh, and and I know. It was kind of one of those things where Bauer Martinez took it over and they just didn't really have the the pull to get a lot of publicity going for that movie. And, you know, MGM actually was the, the studio that distributed it, but there was really no no advertising of that movie at all. I mean, it was just kind of dumped into theaters. I remember seeing it and it's a, it's a decent movie. Um, but it, that's, that was kind of, I, I believe that was the biggest movie that, uh, Bauer Martinez had, had a hand in, in getting distributed. But, um, but yeah, I mean, they, they, for a brief period, they were, they were doing some pretty solid movies and, uh, you know, the defender is definitely one of them. They also did. I mean, this is this is really weird to be mentioning on a Dolph Lundgren uh, action movie podcast. But uh, one of the other big films that they handled distribution on was um, it was with Michelle Pfeiffer and Paul Rudd. And it was a romantic comedy. I think it was called I Could Never Be Your Woman or something like that. But what was uh, what was the big deal about that one is it was it was Amy Hecklering who had done uh, films like uh, Clueless and uh, Fast Times okay. Richmond High. It was it was pretty much her return to um, directing, and they they insisted on um, on distributing that one as well. But kind of like with Harsh Times, they didn't have the pull to fully give that a wide release, and unfortunately, it was dumped direct to video. And I remember reading an interview with Amy Hecklering, and she was like, "Well." Damn, if I would have known, <laughs> I, I would have given it to Warner Brothers or something like that instead. You know? Yeah. So no, absolutely. Well, the Felipe Martinez, he's he actually is the the credited director on one of Seagal's most recent movies, the uh, General Commander, which uh, I have not yet seen, and I'm not really going out of my way to see. But uh, he's he's still active and doing his thing. To some capacity, because he is the uh, the credited director on that film. Well, and this uh, this particular film was written by a gentleman by the name of Douglas W. Miller, 
who really hasn't uh, done much. He only has three screenwriting credits to his name. But interestingly, he does have a good handful of producing credits to his name, but they're all mainly just the titles that were distributed by Bauer Martinez Studios. So, <laughs> Coincidence. I, I think not. Okay, so, um, but you know, as we as we get right into the film, you know, I will say right now, the opening title sequence, it's very evident that Dolph and the production are attempting something here with style and a very specific flair to it all. Um, you know, I, I noticed it on the first time viewing it, but on my repeated viewing just a couple nights ago, I, I love this opening title sequence. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's not much. It's nothing too flashy, but I think it's something kind of letting you know that, okay, Dolph is invested here and he even wants the opening titles to look cool. And so the opening titles, they do this really cool fade in and fade out effect that I feel is extremely striking. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's kind of telling you right off the bat that, you know, look, you're watching a low-budget action movie, but this isn't just your standard, you know, white text on the black background uh, type of credits. That there's, there's, you know, again, there's a little more thought going into this this movie, and yeah, the the title sequence is the kind of the first clue to that. And you know, you're, you've got an idea that okay, I mean, I, I am watching a, a low-budget direct-video action movie, but it's this one's just a little bit different than than what I'm normally used to with these. Also, how cool is it to see the title flash on screen a film by Dolph Lundgren? I don't know about oh, you, but boy. I thought that was pretty cool. No, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, to me, even when he's just acting, it's still a film by Dolph Lundgren to some degree. But yeah, the, the, this one, this one made it official. This was, you know, there, there's no nobody to blame or no one to give praise to but him. Uh, he he's he's in charge of this ship, and and by God, he he's coming out of the gate pretty quick. Well, and the film uh, opens with uh, essentially. Three separate timelines. I thought this was pretty interesting. So it opens with uh, Dolph's character being whisked away in an ambulance. And then it quickly flashes back to uh, 1991, where he is captured prisoner in the Iraq desert. And then the shifts, uh, the, the, the scenes then shift, presumably to the present, where Dolph is working as a Secret Service agent to a White House official. Um, this is the uh, the head of the NSA uh, Mrs. Jones. And I mean, this is all done within the first five minutes, giving us exactly what we need to know about uh, Dolph's character. But it, it, it's done so well. And it lets us know pretty much, okay, that Lundgren's character, uh, Lance Rockford, which, as you mentioned, great name. Um, oh, yeah. But th these scenes, while there's really no dialogue whatsoever to him, it's letting you know, okay, Lundgren's character he is a seasoned veteran who has been through hell and back, literally, but he's also a survivor, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and like, like you mentioned, you have – there's a lot going on in the first few minutes of this movie, but it's not in any confusing kind of way. You, you know, it's easy to pick up, okay, this takes place here, this takes place now, and so even though you've got kind of a lot of jumping early on, it's it's in no way just kind of a mishmash of scenes that make no sense. It 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 all basically flows together real well, uh, which you know again give give credit to Lundgren for for pulling that off because a lot of times 
when these when these kind of movies get a little too fancy with the 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 time switching and the flashbacks they can become a mess but that's definitely not the case here well and regarding the uh the timeline of the film how it's jumping around i honestly think that this is <laughs> I, I i think it's Dolph. you know he's he's showing off a little bit here as a director i think he's letting audiences know within these you know these first 5 to 10 minutes that he's not just a gun for hire on this one i think by this point He's letting everybody know, okay, look, uh, I've been around the block and I've been in the film business for over 20 years. I know what is going to look good on camera. And I think he wanted to show what he could do. You know, it's a great use of exposition, giving us exactly what we need to know, but in an efficient, not to mention really coherent manner. And I will say also, you know, I, I love the, the little camera tricks that he's using here. I mean, he's giving us, again, within these the, the first five to ten minutes, he's given us lots of slow motion, lots of dissolving shots. I mean, all fun little um, tricks of the camera that I think, with the exception of uh, the things that Isaac Florentine used in Bridge of Dragons, w- was pretty much missing from all of the other direct-to-video efforts. Yeah, no, he, he is stating very clear up front that this is not a Damien Lee film. This is uh <laughs> this is uh this is a whole new breed of a Dolph Lundgren movie, and that's because Dolph Lundgren's directing it and he is he like you said, he's showing off a bit, but you know, why the hell not? I mean, he's the one calling the shots and it's 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 gonna be his name on it, so hey, he might as well pull out whatever bag of tricks he's got and uh and like it's it's done very well in, in the, the early part of this film. Well, you know, and I don't know about you, but this is something that I noticed the uh, on my most recent viewing. But I will say, the fact that this is filmed on film does the movie a lot of favors. You know, I mean, I think, yeah. I don't know if you would agree or not, but, you know, I think the look of digital filmmaking nowadays uh, just screams cheap. And I get the digital filmmaking is easier, it's more efficient, it's more cost effective. But I think when you're using film... It just has such a different kind of polish and edge to it all. And with a film like The Defender, this film that is filmed and set in Romania, it just looks so nice and so crisp. Yeah, I mean, it's like when you watch these movies, these low-budget action movies from the 90s and the early 2000s, it's like, yeah, they're low-budget, but they still look like movies. You know, they they Mm -hmm. have a movie look to them. That doesn't mean that they're going to be necessarily good or bad. They still have to kind of sink or swim on their own merits, but they look like movies. And when you watch, you know, I, I don't want to bring up too many of his more recent movies from uh, from last year. But when you watch some of these lower budget action movies now, they, they just they they don't really look like movies. They pretty much no. feel like feel like old syndicated tv shows basically and it it, it's that that but that's certainly not the case with the defender i mean it looks like a motion picture that uh that as it should be from that era so yeah it definitely jumps out at you and definitely jumped out at me when i when i was watching it a few days ago is man this this is a movie this is not just some digital thing that was filmed in 15 days and uh and just kind of spit out 
um, which is kind of the case with, with some of the ones that he's been doing lately. That, you know, this is an honest to God motion picture. Well, and you know, I, if my uh, if my research is correct, um, I guess this was filmed on a six million dollar budget, which you know doesn't seem like much, but boy, does Dolphin Company make the most of it. I think nowadays, if you look at the uh, the direct to video action market, I mean, the films in the in the current climate aren't even made for that. I think nowadays the mindset is essentially okay. We have six million. Let's try to eke out three to four movies out of this. But this was made at a time where, okay, if all they're getting is $6 million, then man, Dolph and company are going to make the most of that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, six, nothing, these movies are not done for $6 million now. It's like, you know, the ones that get made now that have probably the, you know, the best production value are the ones that, that Scott Adkins are doing. But those are, even those are about maybe $4 million. Uh, you know, maybe five at the most. Um, and for the most part, these kind of movies, they're being done for like two million and under. So, you know, six million back in the mid 2000s. I mean, that's, that's giving you some leeway. And what I think that what that buys you is it buys you time. Uh, that's, that's the even more important thing is just having the time to, to make the movie you want to make. And I don't know exactly how long this film for, but you know, I got to believe it was twice as long as, as what these sort of movies are getting filmed for now. And, you know, we've, we've already mentioned him, but uh, we also see Jerry Springer shows up as the president of the United States. This is an interesting casting choice here. You know, what's uh, <laughs> speaking of interesting, um, Jerry Springer, to my knowledge, really only has, well, I guess if you want to count his, uh, the film that he did called Ringmaster, where he pretty much played a version yes. of himself. Uh, but he did another film around the same time, oddly enough, with uh, Bauer Martinez Studios called Citizen Verdict, where he played a very sleazy talk show uh, producer. And I believe he did that film pretty much back to back with this particular film. But yeah, you know, when you think of an actor who is going to show up and play the president of the United States, you don't necessarily think Jerry Springer. But dare I say it in this film, he's actually pretty good. I mean, yeah, I mean, he does a perfectly fine job. I mean, it's, uh, you know, like you had mentioned earlier. Him being in a Dolph Lundgren movie kind of conjures up those images of Montel Williams and the Peacekeeper. But I, Springer's just fine. I mean, if he if he didn't have you know the baggage of his talk show, you know, I don't think anybody would would complain about him his casting. They would just say, okay, well, he, here's a guy who's playing the president and in a in a, in a low budget action movie, and he's doing a, about a, as good a job as a lot of people would do with that particular part. And yeah, I thought he was just fine. I mean, he's, uh, yes, I believe, well, I mean, now if we're looking at nowadays, the, the idea of Jerry Springer's president really isn't that far fetched when you consider what's, what's going on in the world today. It's, it actually seems very believable, but uh, yeah, I thought he did a, a perfectly fine job with this role. Well, and you know, it, it's funny because uh, I remember uh, sending you the link. It's now, gone offline unfortunately but um i remember jerry springer was hosting uh, a, a satellite radio show uh one morning um, he was kind of the interim uh, host and i called in and i did ask him 
about his uh, experience working on the film. And what's interesting is he had forgotten about it. I think, you know, these celebrities, <laughs> because they have so much going on and so many yeah. different projects that they kind of forget about, you know, small things like this. But he had forgotten about it. But I do remember he said in my brief conversation with him, he said a couple things. He said, first of all, um, it's pretty cool that he got to play the president of the United States, even if it was a fictional one. He loved the fact that he got to play the president and he did commend Dolph. He said, you know, for being a first time director, Dolph was amazing to, uh, to work with on set. Yeah, no, that's, that's very cool to hear. I mean, and at this point, like now it's, it's, I, I mean, I guess his show is still on. I, I don't even really know if it's still on. I assume it is somewhere. Uh, Cause it just feels like these kind of shows don't really die, but I mean, back in the in these days, I mean, the show was it was pretty big. It was like a big deal. The all the the fights and the this and the final thoughts and it, it was <laughs> you know, Springer was a it was kind of a big deal. So you know, it's like now I don't even know if he really registers much in the the public consciousness, but in at this point in time, he did. And it it could have been a real cheeseball move to have him as the president. But the fact that they do it relatively straight is, I think, one of the one of the really good choices that the movie makes. Well, and as we see Lance Rockford, I mean, he um, he's assembling his Secret Service team for their latest assignment. And I do I do kind of have to grin at the scene where the team is together and they're walking in the airplane hangar, getting ready to board the plane. Yes. I mean, it looks cool, sure, but for whatever reason, there's techno music going, and uh, it's it's in slow motion. And we're going to be talking yeah. about it, but Dolph wants to play that scene again at the end of the film. You know, it looks cool. It looks like uh, Dolph is getting along with everybody on on set in this particular scene, but it is it is. I do have to grin at that. Yeah, it's a little bit of a sort of a, a Team America type moment. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that, 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 that's that's about the, what it, what it reminds me of, and and you know they, they though it's kind of, it's an odd choice because usually in those kind of slow mo scenes with the whole team of badasses, you know they're not just grinning from ear to ear, which everybody in this shot is basically. They just look like they're having the time of their lives. So that I mean, it's that like kinda, they're all or something like. yeah they just it's like oh we're going to disneyland and it's uh it, it, it's, <laughs> that's a little odd but uh but yeah it's that's that's maybe one shot in the movie that maybe i would have reconsidered if i but you know hey i think Dolph is just kind of trying a little bit of everything and you know i think he knows he knows quite a bit about being filmed in slow motion in in, in many of his movies so i think he was just taking a stab at it and uh it's you know it's it's harmless enough well and it's it's just really it's really odd though that again dolph chooses to play that scene at the very end of the film I and mean, he replays that scene at the very end of the film only it's in black and white and I mean, narratively, it just kind of comes in weird because, spoiler, uh, one of the members of the team is a bad guy, so it's is a villain. So it's yes, kind of yes. interesting that he chooses to close the film out with that particular scene. But in any case, That's right? It's it's it makes you. Yeah, I guess you're supposed to think back and say, "Oh boy, those were the days when they were all getting along and everything was great." And it's 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 got a real tinge of melancholy at the end because because now we know the rest of the story. 
No, but I do love your analogy. It seems like they're all going off to Disneyland. Disneyland or exactly. a bachelor party. Maybe it's a bachelor party in Disneyland. I don't know. Um, it could, yes, absolutely. Could be. I mean, what what better place to have a bachelor party? To be honest. <laughs> but you know, Dolph's team is essentially a bunch of no names, with the exception of James Chalk. He's pretty much at least uh, you know to. Um, <laughs> seasoned veterans of uh, of these films. Um, James Chalk shows up, a uh, friend of Lundgren's and friend of the show. He plays the sniper. Then there's a female member of the team who, for whatever reason, nicknames Rockford Skipper. I thought that was uh, yeah. that was interesting. Yeah. And <laughs> the other part that I have to laugh at is he also recruits a rookie where it is established that uh, it is this rookie's first mission. Gee, I wonder if he's going to make it through the duration of the film, right? Yeah, I'm I'm, su- I'm surprised that he wasn't wearing a, a bright red shirt um, as he was uh, as he was getting ready for his his mission there. Because uh, yeah, he 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 looked pretty doomed as as things were going to start. But yeah, when, when you mentioned James Chalk, I gotta say, man. He looks pretty badass in this movie. I mean, he looks he like he's re- home, yeah. he looks like he's ready for business in this movie. So I gotta I gotta give it up to actor and realtor extraordinaire James Chalk in this one because he really looks the part. Like I totally buy him as as a badass sniper in this movie. Well, and speaking of looks, uh, Dolph's look in the film I think is cool and. You know, relatively new for him in terms of the characters that he's played. Uh, in this particular film, he's rocking the same uh, long hair that he had in Retrograde and Direct Action. Only now, I thought this was pretty cool. He's wearing this uh, navy blue suit with a turtleneck. And I don't know if you noticed it. I mean, he, he looks great rocking that particular suit. But I don't know if you noticed it. But he never once unbuttons the sport coat as he's running through firing the pistol and going through the forest in the final 15 minutes of the film. Um, that sport coat never gets unbuttoned. How badass is that? I mean, it might've been product placement. Maybe it was a designer that gave specific instructions. Do not unbutton this jacket. Uh, it could have been something like that, but I agree. I mean, I think his, his look is pretty cool in this movie. Um, you know, he doesn't, he no longer has the, the red track jacket, uh, from direct action. So he's, he's definitely traded up from, from, from that film. And, uh, yeah, I think he, uh, he, he, he looks pretty legit in this movie. Well, and they're the job. So Lundgren and his team, their job is to provide protection for, um, so basically the, uh, Mrs. Jones, again, that's the, the head of NSA. She is, uh, going to a meeting at this, uh, at this empty hotel in Bucharest. It's pretty much a, uh, there, there's this controversial peace treaty meeting that the president has organized. And the entire purpose and topics for the meeting are kept extremely top secret, though Rockford is instructed when he's on the plane by Miss Jones that he is not to speak about the meeting, uh, not to provide, it, provide any kind of information once the meeting has commenced. And we're to assume that Obviously, because they show uh, scenes, you know, briefly at the beginning during that opening montage. But we're to assume that it obviously has something to do regarding terrorism and the war on terror, America's policy with regard to negotiating with terrorists. But that's pretty much the uh, what the meeting is going to be about. But we don't know, at least at this point in the film, who she's going to be meeting with or what's going to be going on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's uh, actually kind of a, a cool little hook. Uh, that the movie has as, you know, 
who who is who are they going to be meeting with? I mean, what's what's going on here? They're not really explaining everything, which a lot of times in these movies they feel the need to explain everything. But I think there's a you know a little bit of mystery to it, and uh, it, it 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 I think it's to the film's benefit that they don't necessarily tell you everything that's going on right away. Well, and. We already kind of addressed it, but yeah, the, the meeting is taking place at this uh, posh hotel. Uh, it's an empty hotel uh, somewhere outside of Bucharest, and this is going to be the setting for the rest of the film. Now, I'm, I'm sure you noticed it as well, but I think from a production standpoint, I think, again, this is, this is Dolph and everybody looking at what they're working with in terms of budget, what they're, uh, what they're working with in, times of, uh, in, in terms of number of uh, days to shoot. I think, like I said, this is a wise move. I think, again, by this point in Lundgren's career, he knew how to work within the confines of what a budget, particularly a lower budget independent film would allow. And I honestly think, you know, with this particular film, he's cribbing from productions like Silent Trigger and to an extent, perhaps even Masters of the Universe. I think he's under the mindset of, okay, when you're working with a small budget, it is so much better and so much wiser to utilize a single set and work solely within that set and have a relatively confined film, if you will. You know, you can pretty much center all of your action within this location and blow everything up. I mean, and this isn't a, uh, this isn't entirely a new concept. Low budgets do this all the time, but I think this is, uh, this is Dolph here. Again, not a very, not the most original idea, but he is being extremely practical here. And, and that's one thing that I love about it. Yeah. And I think, I think the, the location actually looks really good. Uh, you know, I, yeah. I, it's, it's, you know, again, we're, if I'm, I'm comparing it to some other recent movies he's done where you just, everything just looks so drab and just so bleh and just horrendous. I, I, I like this kind of this location. I mean, it has kind of this real sort of gothic quality to it in a way that, uh, you know, and just it's just this empty hotel in, in Eastern Europe. And uh, I don't know, it has kind of a, a, a cool vibe to it. And I think the Blundgren uses it very well and to the film's advantage. Well, I mean, if, like I said, if you look at a lot of low budget films, they will do this, uh, they will do the same kind of same strategy. Okay. We have so much to work with here. We have so many shooting days. Okay. Well, let's have the entire film take place within this one building or, uh, this one, uh, this convenience store, if you will, or whatever it may be. I mean, look at, uh, look at the film Evil Dead, for example. I think half the reason why the movie Evil Dead works and is such a classic that it is, is because of its confined setting within the cabin. You know what I mean? Oh, totally. Totally. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the cabin is basically a character of it in itself. And like you had mentioned, um, silent trigger that that's another movie where I think the location basically becomes a character. And I, I think the same could be said for the, the hotel in this movie. I mean, I, I kind of look at this film as sort of a, a, a political thriller version of Assault on Precinct 13. And, you know, just like how vital the, the actual police station is in that movie, it's, it's the same with the hotel right here. And uh, I think it's a, it's a good job of Lundgren to to really get get that point across that that this location is very key to what's going on and uh i i really 
I, I don't. It doesn't doesn't really feel that cheap to me. That sometimes you get these movies that are just in one location and they just they just don't look good at all because they don't really know how to use it. But I I feel like in this movie he he knows exactly how he's using it and it it really comes off great. Well, and you also have to consider that this film is also a political thriller. And, you know, I, I kind of, I said this on a, on an earlier episode, you know, but I honestly think, you know, political thrillers are hard to do, in my opinion, on low budget. It's kind of similar to science fiction, you know, if you're going to have a low budget, then you really have to think about ways where you can cut corners to, you know, kind of make that work. And I mean, me personally, when I think of a political thriller, okay, I think of a lot of globe trotting and a lot of jumping continents and, I mean, which I think this film could have done, but it wisely decided to avoid. I mean, if you want to look at this, say, for example, compared to Lundgren's previous effort where he was paired with the talk show host, The Peacekeeper, Peacekeeper um, has some elements that are political, but that one just looks so much cheaper than this does. Yeah, that's a good point, because, you know, and I think like I said on the, the Peacekeeper episode was it's actually pretty good when they're moving around and outside of the, the silo. But once they get in that silo, it just looks so cheap and just so bad that it's hard to really get too interested in anything going on at that point. And I feel like the defender doesn't suffer from that at all. Well, and you know, within the film, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty quick actually after they're at the hotel, but yeah, suddenly Rockford and his team, uh, find themselves under attack by unknown and unseen shooters. And clearly they're there to sabotage and stop whatever mysterious meeting is taking place, proving that the meeting was not as top secret as planned. <laughs> um, but uh, yes. the first one who is killed is, wouldn't you know it, uh, the rookie um, who established earlier that this was his first assignment we already talked about. Pretty telegraphed and cliche, but I didn't mind it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, we've seen it many, 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 many times before. It's like, it's, it's whether either you're the, the, the rookie in, on his first assignment or you're the, the seasoned veteran with one week before retirement, but either one of those, you're pretty much doomed in these movies. And, and yeah, it's, it's, we've seen it plenty of times before. So what the hell? Let's just see it one more time in this movie. Well, and the attackers, I like the fact that you said it's kind of a political version of assault on uh, assault on Precinct 13, because, yeah, very similar, actually. You got that, again, that, that kind of claustrophobic, you know, sense uh, of, of everything that's going on. The attackers have also jammed the signals for Rockford and his team to communicate with the outside, uh, pretty much leaving them uh, to fend for themselves in the hotel. And what I thought was uh, so interesting, I, I kind of had flashbacks of Silent Trigger here. Because the army of assailants and assassins, they just keep coming. I mean, they really don't. What's interesting is they really don't put up that part of a fight for Lundgren and team. Yes. I mean, Lundgren and his guys really don't have much of a much trouble uh, fending these guys off, but they just keep coming in, and they're all faceless. They they all do. We never see their faces. We never know their names. I mean, they just. Um, it almost feels kind of like a video game, you know, where all you're killing all these. Uh, various uh, bad dudes that just keep coming at you and you don't even bother to know who any of these guys are. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, likely it's probably the the same three dudes over and over again, same three performers. But but yeah, yeah. within the context of the film, it, you're right. They just kind of keep coming, keep coming, and you know, just they're you know popping he, popping out here, popping out there. They're just sort of everywhere. And uh, yeah, it's, it's it's exactly that sort of assault on Precinct 13 kind of thing, where it's just in that movie, it was just kind of this endless array of, of gang members. And here it's just this uh, endless array of what, well, at least at this point, what we think are, are terrorists and kind of find out later that's not necessarily the case. But but yeah, they just kind of keep coming and keep coming and it, it never really ends. And that definitely adds to the tension in the movie. Well, and reminding you that Jerry Springer is still in the movie as, again, president of the United States, uh, the film keeps shifting back and forth between Rockford and his team, who are under attack, uh, back to Springer's president, who's back in America. And, you know, this is one thing I was going to ask you. He is aware of the danger that they are currently in at this moment, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, yeah. He, he he knows that that. Uh, absolutely what what's going on that's that's very clear so i mean okay so rockford and his team what's left of them because there's already been a few casualties um i thought this is kind of cool they find a secret passageway in a corridor within the hotel and they find yes. they find mrs jones she is in hiding and we also discover who she was meeting with okay so it turns out that she is actually having a meeting with a known terrorist and threat to America known as Mohammed Jamar. And uh, th th this kind of put, uh, th this puts Lundgren's uh, Rockford character, he's in a bit of a conflict here and he's extremely torn because of course he is to protect uh, Mrs. Jones from all threats. But this terrorist here is also the one who was responsible for not only, uh, not only Lundgren's capture that we saw earlier in the film, but also the deaths of uh, many of uh, Rockford's fellow soldiers. Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, obviously there's there's a lot of twists that kind of keep keep getting poured on at, at this point in the movie. And yeah, at this point, we, we believe that, that it's the, the terrorist leader who, uh, who was being met with. And, you know, that adds to the tension already that's been mounting in the film and kind of, you know, makes the stakes a little bit higher for Lundgren's character. And and then as as we later find out, there's there's even more to it. So, uh, again, it's like sometimes these movies, they they sort of fall over themselves trying to be too convoluted with all the the different twists and turns. But I think it's everything's done pretty well in, in this in this movie. And the, the, the twists just kind of add to the, the tension in the action that's going on. Well, let's go to the big twist then right now, Chris. Um, the whole purpose of the meeting is to, as Jamar puts it, um, quote unquote, to buy his invisibility. So I'll, I'll go to you. What is what is President Jerry Springer? It, what's interesting is the. Jerry Springer's character never has a name. He's just the president. I don't know if you noticed that or not. the president. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so we'll call him President Springer. But what is pretty much, uh, what is his plan here in negotiating a deal with this terrorist? Well, now, are we getting to the, the, even the more twists that get added on as the film goes on? Or are we just kind of talking about what's going on at this moment? 
Let's just do this moment. So pretty much okay. why why is it that why is it that the head of the NSA is having a top secret meeting with the world's most notorious terrorist? Yeah, well, I mean, at, at, as it's I think being explained at this point, it's it's essentially just to buy him off and to you know basically give him a, a whole lot of money to go away, and you know that that was what all the negotiations were about. And now things get a little more complicated as it as it goes on. But at least at this point, that's kind of what I was getting from it was the whole the whole plan, as it's explained right now, is just to buy the, the, the terrorist leader off. Right, because they basically they figure out, OK, if he is captured, then the American public is going to insist on his death. And, yeah. you know, they'll. And if, if he if he is killed, that'll make him a martyr. And then, you know, right. um, copycat terrorists may follow in, in his shoes. If he is tried and then found innocent, well, then, then that would cripple whatever kind of alliances that America has established. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, like you said, the president has de essentially decided to buy him off, figures, okay, if we pay off this terrorist, then that's going to better ensure America's safety and peace of mind, right? Yes, yes. At at this point, that is what we're we're led to. Which you know, I will say, it's a pretty intriguing concept and pretty thought provoking. I, I will say. I mean, I'm not I'm not an expert in politics or anything, but I, I will say, listening to that, I was thinking, okay, I I don't know if me personally, I don't know if that makes me feel exactly comfortable or anything, but I'm thinking, okay, that is a uh, that is a pretty intriguing fictional um idea right there oh yeah no absolutely that's uh I, I think you could almost base an entire movie just around that concept and in this one it's a it's kind of a a, a rather small detail because it, it, the the plot even changes more as it as the movie goes on but yeah i think just that premise alone of just buying off a a known terrorist leader is, is kind of intriguing just by itself well, and one thing we haven't talked about is just how down and dirty Dolph gets with all of the action. Uh, you know, I, I think here, because Dolph is also directing, we, we've already established it, but Dolph is clearly invested. I mean, he is running, diving from gunfire explosions. I mean, I don't know if, um, I'm assuming maybe he, he had to have some stunt doubles, you know, but again, if you want to compare this to, uh, guys like Steven Seagal, who were just, relying on their stunt doubles all the time for even films that, or excuse me, for even scenes that didn't even require, <laughs> that didn't even require a stunt double here. Yes. Dolph is, he is invested and he is doing this, but I, I love so many of these uh, action sequences. He shoots a few assailants at point blank range, which is cool to see. Yes. He also, uh, one scene that I love is he beats a guy to death after he grabs him by the crotch throws him over his head and then just, you know, pummels him. I mean, so that is pretty cool. And the other thing we haven't talked about is there's lots of squib work that is being used oh, in yes. this film. And so that's really cool to see as well. I mean, again, for this being a uh, a political thriller, it's not going to go full on, you know, political route, like say Patriot Games or something. Not saying Patriot Games is a boring movie by any means, but that one's more... uh more serious and you know <laughs> the, the, this yeah. one is oh, like you said getting down and dirty and it is it is going to make action fans happy yeah well i like the the sequence where uh the james chalk's uh, sniper character is killed 
and they they head up to where he was in the hotel and you know Dolph uh, sees his body you know kind of charred laying there cuz they had you know fired a, an RPG at him and you know he's so ticked off that he picks up Chalks's uh sniper rifle and he starts going to town with it and you know they have those sh- those little scenes of him you know shooting the various terrorists down off the street level and it actually it kind of reminds me of the uh I mean, of a movie a little a few years later, the Inglorious Bastards with the uh, the the nation's pride film uh, at the end where they have the the German sniper picking off the American soldiers. Right. That <laughs> that whole sequence with with Dolph and the sniper rifle, I, it kind of made me think of, of that that part in uh, Inglorious Bastards. But I think I think that's a pretty cool scene. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of just really cool action scenes in this one, and they're you know this just staged really well they you know it, this was kind of the era of shaky cam but there's really none of that in here i mean you can see everything that's going on and it, the the geography of the sequences is laid out really well and and yeah i mean i, mean, I, I totally agree that that he he gets right down and dirty with uh with everything that's going on in the film well and i love the final shootout i mean the the final shootout through the woods is extremely well shot and filmed. I mean, it's pretty much Rockford and his team. They are escorting Mrs. Jones and Jamar, this uh, the, this terrorist leader, escorting to safety in the forest surrounding the hotel. And I love this because I don't want to say they're sitting ducks. I mean, because they are running, but they are clearly outnumbered. But I like this scene because the urgency of it is real and palpable. I mean, it is just, I mean, you can tell that they are running for their lives, trying to get to safety. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you view it, but Jamar, this terrorist, he is shot by the army and he is killed um, while they are running. Well, now, but now at this point, we now, we know that it's, it's not actually that terrorist. He's right. He is also a CIA operative who's basically just a decoy and his his basically his number one bodyguard, the uh, the Morgan character. They're both working for the CIA and they're they're just there to try to flush out the the traitors who are who are actually the ones attacking and uh, who are, you know, it's not necessarily terrorists that have been pulling this off but you can also consider them terrorists even though they're american terrorists but i i thought that was a pretty cool twist of the reveal that that it's not actually the terrorist leader and that you know he himself is a, is a cia operative and I, again i thought it was just a really cool little addition that uh just again it wasn't something i would have predicted and it's it's a nice little surprise and kind of raises the stakes a little bit more, which you're you're not really expecting in this kind of movie. Yeah, I was not expecting that twist whatsoever. I mean, I pretty much, I, I kind of had an idea that the meeting was going to be with this terrorist dude who we saw at the beginning. But yeah, I liked that twist. I like the, uh, I like the, the Morgan character. We haven't talked about him, but he resembles Jason Patrick uh, back when Jason that's Patrick right. did the film Rush, if you remember. Yeah. Um, and th- th- that, that's kind of who, who I kept uh, looking at when when i saw that you know what's interesting is um how do you as a side note the uh the cia operative who is the decoy how do they sell him on that particular role pretty much hey you need to go in and there's a good possibility that you may die 
but here you go. I mean, that, that had to be well, a, here, a well, hard sell, right? Well, here was my question is, okay, so they're going to throw throw out a decoy for this terrorist leader. Why don't they have a decoy posing as the head of national security? Do they really need to have right. the, the actual head of national security? If I'm her, I'm probably like, you know, I'm going to hang back. Why don't you just find someone who looks vaguely like me? Put her in a, in a in a decent dress and uh, and just you know we'll, we'll we'll just we'll do it that way. So I yeah, that was kind of my question as to if you're going to be doing all this decoy work, why are you having the actual head of national security there? But you know, hey, it's it's uh it's always fun to kind of pick, pick poke holes in these films, and that that's one that I would I would have uh, would have poked right away. Well, I love how uh, Springer, President Springer as we keep saying, I love how he's onto him and he pretty much is one step ahead of all of these guys. And he gets that great line where he pretty much, uh, he tells them all you messed with the wrong country and you blanked with the wrong president. You know, oh, yeah, that Jerry Springer loved saying that line. I wouldn't be surprised if pretty much, uh, when Felipe Martinez, uh, brought this uh, project to him, uh, Jerry Springer was looking at it. Eh. And then he looks at that line and says, Okay, yeah, I'll do it. That sounds good. Yeah, yes. yeah, he's and he sells it too. I mean, he really goes for it. Yeah, and uh, and he pulls off the line. I mean, that's, I mean, that's the money line of the movie right there. And and uh, he's he's the one who's got it. It's not really Dolph. Dolph doesn't really have a big one liner or a big, you know, kind of signature line. But if you're looking for one in the film, it's definitely that line from Springer, no doubt about it. Well, and we find out that uh, yeah, there's quite a few moles. I mean, there, there's a few moles who are um, in the uh, in the president's team, but then there's one big mole who's in uh, Rockford's team, who um, unfortunately is Kay, who again was uh, Rockford's right hand gal throughout the entire mission. She was the one who kept calling him Skipper, but uh, yeah, she is the one who uh, Lundgren has to uh, blow away at the end. Yeah, I think that's actually a cool decision of. You know, you have this team of what I guess it was six people. Um, you've got this team of of six, um, and basically, out of all of them, the 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 only turncoat is is the woman. And I thought I think that's kind of an interesting choice, and uh, you know, not exactly what you would expect in this kind of movie, but it's uh, it's done pretty well here. Um, so I, yeah, I, I kind of give. I give Lundgren credit again for kind of going against the grain when it comes to having the big reveal of, of your uh, your turncoat in a film like this. So the film ends. Uh, Lundgren is back on American soil. Well, we can assume it's American soil, but um, obviously yeah. I'm assuming these scenes were filmed uh, in Europe as well. But uh, Rockford seems to quit the Secret Service. Um, despite the urging of Mrs. Jones, she, uh, is urging him to, to stay, but, uh, he decides, no, this isn't for him. What's interesting to me about the, the final scene is how Lundgren and the president really don't even get a chance to speak. Did you notice that as well? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I wonder what was behind <laughs> that particular decision. I mean, they're right there, but they're right uh, there. Yeah. It's, 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 that's a little bit of a weird, a weird decision, but I, you know, I guess, I, I like, Hey, like you said, you spoke to Jerry. He seemed to like Dolph. I don't think it had anything yeah. to do with that. I don't think there was any kind of difficult tension on set between Lundgren and Springer. So who knows exactly why that decision was made? You know, one thing that I will say, um, 
one thing that I think may turn many away from this film, and it may be one of the things that uh, has uh, made the film kind of not one of Dolph's uh, more popular or known films, is the fact that there really doesn't appear to be a real villain. I mean, you and I have talked about it before. Uh, one of the ways to sell an action figure and just make it stand out is if you have a real solid villain. And with this particular film, there really isn't one, which... I agree with, and, you know, it is a little problematic. However, you know, I think that's clearly the point of the film. I, I think in the end, the film is trying to prove or trying to make a statement. And if I'm wrong, let you know, please let me know. But I think the film is trying to make a statement that, you know what, some of our deadliest enemies stand on American soil and they claim that they are the true Americans. But then you have to step back and you have to wonder, well, are they? You know what I mean? And I kind of wonder if that is the idea they're trying to sell. Yeah, yeah, or or it could be we've already paid Lundgren and Springer a big chunk of the budget, and we can't really <laughs> we can't we we can't get Eric Roberts or Tree Williams to come in for uh, for a few days of of villain work, so uh, we're just gonna stick with what we got. And I guess it also would be kind of tough because so much of the premise is the fact that the bad guys are are what we believe are foreign terrorists. And so that that kind of is a is a mystery through most of the movie. And, you know, eventually we learn that there are really, you know, kind of turncoats, American turncoats, essentially. And so without having a a main um, antagonist, you can kind of keep that illusion going for for most of the film. So that's probably another reason Um, I agree. You know, I, I, I tend to like when you have. A, a big antagonist and kind of chew scenery, but, and you don't really get that in this movie. Um, but I, I don't think it hurts it too much. I, I think that's, uh, there's just so many different things going on in the film that I, I'd find that I don't really miss, uh, having a prime antagonist as, as you would normally in these kind of films. I do think what they could have done, I mean, and it didn't need to be a big name or anything like that, but what they could have done is, I don't know, they could have had a, uh, the lead, the lead hitman, who's the one who's kind of calling all the shots, and maybe for the, for the duration he is um, masked most of the time. But they could have had a big, imposing dude who, like I said, is the one calling the shots and the one who's kind of directing the uh, the, the hitman to you know go here and go there. And then Dolph could get a final you know one on one mano a mano you know fight with that dude. They could have done that, but then kind of like you said, I think a good portion of the budget went here and went there. And then they also had so many shooting days allotted to where they probably just didn't have the time to compensate for something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think you can probably chalk it up to that. I mean, I feel like if, you know, if you kind of were to massage this movie a bit and kind of take the general plot and, you know, give it a a bigger budget, I I think you could take this plot and you could turn it into a, a really good um, has fallen movie with uh, Gerard Butler. I, I feel yeah. like that's that's what this could be. You could you know just smooth it out a little, spend a little more money, and and that I think you'd have a pretty good premise for a for another has fallen film. And that's that's kind of what that's another one that was I was kind of reminded of when I was watching The Defender again is. You know, it's got a little bit of assault on Precinct Thirteen, a little bit of of the the, the has fallen movies, and uh, yeah, I, I think it 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 lives up to both of those 
types of movies rather well. God, at a certain point, that's the, I mean, <laughs> as much as I enjoy the Has Fallen movies, I do like how the third one finally addressed the fact that, yeah, this poor guy has saved the world now multiple times. He's going to be having some psychological problems and some uh, uh, recurring headaches here. Uh, and I guess yeah. supposedly they have another couple fallen films that are in the pipeline. At this point, I don't know what Mike Banning can do to save the world other than going to outer space at this point. But uh, I guess if McLean can, uh, if John McLean can save the day five times, then. I guess Mike Banning. Can uh, you do know, it too. I, I mean, I think I think after after three Rambo's, when we heard there would be a, eventually be a fourth, that was probably the question that that we had back then. Well, what the hell is Rambo going to do for a fourth film? And that turned out real well. Uh, not quite as well with the fifth entry, but it, at least the fourth one turned out fantastic. And uh, yeah, so I, I I think that the, the Has Fallen movies can can probably still come up with something i mean it's basically the movie version of 24 and uh you know there, there's always there's always new villains that you can find that 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 you can have banning go up against and like i said if they if they kind of just took the the general premise of of the defender i think they'd have a, a pretty good premise for a, a fourth fallen movie well, um, you know, I did I did watch this film all the way through um till the very end of the credits and I saw something uh in the in the credits that I thought was uh was pretty nice and and kind of touching in a lot of ways. Um at the very very end of the film, there is a special thanks credit to Sidney J Fury. You know, I mean <laughs> as as ridiculous as detention was, um I'm going to go back to that one as well. As 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 silly as that movie was, I think we do have it to thank for introducing uh Lundgren to Sidney J Fury because had Sid Fury and Dolph not met and kind of joined forces and had Sid Fury not taken Dolph under his wing, I don't know if uh, we would have gotten this particular film. I don't know if Dolph would have gone on to direct films. And, you know, we touched upon it earlier, but who knows, had Dolph not started directing, who knows where he'd be in in his career. So uh, I thought that was that was kind of cool to see. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in a weird way, Sidney Fury is to Dolph as Don Siegel is to Clint Eastwood. I think that's that's kind of how I would, you know, maybe the... Obviously, the films that Siegel did for Eastwood are much more well-known and have kind of stood the test of time. But I feel like there's a, a little bit of a, of, a, of a kindred spirit between those two relationships in terms of, you know, Lundgren kind of working with Fury, who, you know, at, at this point, I mean, he had been making movies for, you know, a very, very long time. I mean, probably... You know, probably at that, even at, at around 2004, I think he'd been making movies for close to 40 years by then. So, I mean, I think he, he definitely learned a lot during, on the two films that he did work with Fury on. And, uh, and yeah, that, that, uh, that shout out at the end is, is pretty cool. Well, the the moment has come, Chris. Thank you again for uh, you know agreeing to help me break this film down. But uh, you know, you know how we do things. I always like to do two recommends: uh, one as a Dolph Lundgren film, and one as a film in general. So, Chris, does The Defender get a recommend from you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think this is one that y you don't even have to be 
a hardcore Lundgren fan to enjoy. If you just like action films, I think you'll enjoy The Defender. So it it gets a very easy recommendation from me. Well said. Yeah, I agree with you completely. Yeah, you know, not only is this an action-packed thriller, but it also has some real thought-provoking moments that you really just don't normally see from these films, especially the ones that, uh, let's face it, go direct to video. I think regardless of how you feel about its political message, it's cool to see a small film like this try something new and intelligent. And it's also a fine directorial debut from uh, Mr. Lundgren. I I will also say, you know, many actors uh, turned first-time directors. I think when it's their first film that they're directing, they always work on something that's uh, maybe a little smaller scale, just so they can test the waters, experiment, and fully get their footing. And I think this certainly has Dolph doing that. But you can tell that he had a clear vision for this one, as evidenced by many of the exterior shots and many of the the camera tricks that he was doing. It's also evident that he clearly wanted to start putting forth solid action films again. Even if they were of the direct-to-video genre, Dolph puts forth easily some of his best acting, and it's a real treat seeing him work both in front of and behind the camera. I, I think this film has a certain kind of grit and edge to it that was missing from Dolph's previous efforts. And I said it on the last episode, when, especially when we discussed direct action. I kind of cited direct action as being the true turning point in Dolph's career, where you could see a glimmer of a change being sparked in the films of Dolph. But I will say, with The Defender, I think the change was in full swing, full effect, and it's glorious to see. I think this film, in particular, set the stage for the next few films on the docket. So look out, because yes... This one gets a wholehearted recommend from me. Oh, damn straight. Look out second term of George Bush Jr. This is this is the era of Dolph. This is the reawakening. And uh, this, you know, I, I, it only gets better with his next movie. Awesome. Well, hey, Chris, like I said, um, it, it had been a little bit, um, but I knew I was going to have you back. And it only made sense that uh, I had you on this one. Because, again, a couple reasons. Uh, you know, you discussed the last... Uh, political thriller team up with talk show host peacekeeper and also uh you were on uh, the first few episodes so now that we're kind of going full circle and also it's kind of like a maybe not even full circle but i would say this is kind of a phase two or the the second wind if you will of uh, lundgren's career it only made sense to uh to have you join me for this one so thank you oh well i, I appreciate you inviting me back and I I really appreciate you for not having me do any of the ones from that he made between 2000 and 2004. So so I, I appreciate that <laughs> even more. And I, I I thank you that I didn't have to it, I didn't have to revisit any of those. I just got to revisit the Defender, which I was more than happy to do. OK, well, I, I, I do appreciate that. But I, I do know you also said that, hey, look, I'll, I'd be willing to take one for the team. So if, if oh, yeah, if if I was not able to have my teacher friend discuss detention, I, I would like to know that you and I um, have established a friendship um, over the years to where you'd be willing to to help a brother out and help me out on that one. So, oh, oh, oh yeah, most definitely. But when it comes to for your teacher, buddy, get him for kindergarten cop, too. Okay. All right. Nathan Burt, if you're listening, we'll, uh, we'll be having you back. All right. Well, hey, Chris, uh, thank you very, very much. Um, this will not be the last time, but I do appreciate it. Uh, to everyone out there who is listening, please feel free to rate and review the show 
on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you go to subscribe. We always appreciate the reviews. And I, I figured we'd end this episode with a sampling of uh, a, the song After All by the band uh, Somnium. Again, this is another band that I've never heard of, but the film Defender over the closing credits does end with this uh, somber, melancholic tune. So if your listening pleasure is a sample of the song After All by the band Somnium. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next time on I Must Break, this podcast.